0: I think the groups that we've just uh, had in discussion uh, have come to the point that I was hoping we'd come to, really, which is to realize that what Scripture's about is is presenting us with a a flow of thought, uh, you know, opening the mind, parceling it up into chapters and verses, convenient as that is for finding our way around our book. It does have a downside in that it, it can't stop us thinking about the passage as a whole. So what we're, we're trying to do is say, what, what are sensible places to stop as we read this and think about a unit? The Isaiah 53 uh, example I gave you, you know, for years I hadn't realized that I should think of the servant song as starting in chapter 52, three verses earlier. And and so, you know, it's like starting mid-sentence. It doesn't make a lot of sense. It's It cuts off the beginning of the thought. So I have to do some catching up there and start to, uh, as we go through, take away the chapter divisions and say, black them out. How do we work this through? And we've been chatting... You know, informally about doing the daily readings, and Ryan's sharing that in his family. You know, they realized this long ago and encouraged to, you know, start where you should start, (laughs) pick it up where you should pick it up from. And that's not a bad thing for us all to think about when we're doing the readings with our families, is to try and catch the thought. From yesterday, wherever we stopped yesterday, and, and bring that to bear as we then carry on reading so that the children are taught that there is, it makes sense. Because, you know, so often we read bits and they don't make sense. Yeah, we, 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 took, we put a bit of confidence on our presentation and, you know, we say, oh, this is what it means. It doesn't really make sense. <laughs> so we need to try and hear what it's saying. What I haven't covered yet is one of the most important clues as to defining a unit of thought. And that is the role of parallelism. And parallelism is something which I suppose we all heard the term and we might have thought it's a bit erudite a little bit. What's that all about? Uh, It's poetry. Well, I'm not really into poetry, so you know, I don't need to look at this. But actually, this is a quotation from the Jewish Encyclopedia, and it says this. It is now generally conceded that parallelism is the fundamental law not only of the poetical, but even of the rhetorical, and therefore of higher style in general. In the Old Testament, what they're saying is that it's not just a poetic form of speaking. It's in uh, other types of narrative as well and what do we mean by parallelism strange thing is that it wasn't discovered until relatively recently this is still the jewish encyclopedia and the jewish encyclopedia credits an english clergyman with recognizing this fundamental feature of hebrew writing uh, and you wonder why it was that uh, the rabbis didn't themselves realize. And my speculation, don't only speculation, is that they were too occupied with studying their traditions and their commentaries than actually studying their own text. They had a sort of like a superstitious reverence for, for scripture in a sense. Don't touch it. <laughs> you know, read what the rabbis have said and read about what other rabbis have said about what the rabbis have said. And that's where their debates were. But it's now generally accepted even within Hebrew scholarship that parallelism is the central defining feature. What do we mean by parallelism? But right. See, just do an experiment just open your Bible to Proverbs or Psalms, put your finger on a verse at random shout it out uh, Psalm 78 verse 10 Psalm 78 verse 10 Psalm 78 verse 10 says okay that's fine that's, that's an example Look at Psalm 78, verse 10. Can you see two statements in one verse? Now, the verses, by and large, have captured the parallelism, right? Uh, So, you know, the verses are often quite good in the Psalms and the Proverbs of, of getting it right. I'm not arguing that whoever put verses and chapters in did a terrible job. I just think that the concept of chapters is harmful to us following the flow But where you got this sort of concept in in a verse, it's okay. So they kept not the covenant of God and refused to walk in his law. Are there two different things going on here? No, there's one thing going on with two ways of saying it. So to keep not the covenant is the same thing as refusing to walk in God's law. Because the covenant and the law were the same thing, weren't they? Yeah, yeah. The law was the covenant. The covenant was the law. Not to keep the covenant is to refuse to walk. So can you see that there's a parallel between those two lines? And you could. And I'm sure some modern versions will set it out in the printing on two separate lines. So you'd say, line one, they kept not the covenant of God. Line two, they refused to walk in his law. Those two lines are called bi-colons. Each line is called colon. It's very confusing to me because we use the colon as two dots in our punctuation, but they call them colons. So that's what parallelism is. And we picked it at random because it's so common, the chances are you fall upon one. <clears throat> in English poetry, we often... Uh, think of it as the rhyming of words. I know modern poetry doesn't rhyme; <laughs> it's no no fun, really. Whereas in Hebrew, the poetry is a rhyme of thought. <clears throat> right. So the parallels are, if you like, rhyming thoughts or matching thoughts. <clears throat> uh, Brother John Carter. Parallelism has more to do with the thought expressed than the rhythm and meter of the light. It is doubtless due to this feature that Hebrew poetry can be translated so well without loss. It's interesting, isn't it? Uh, He's suggesting, I think this is correct, that the father has revealed his word in a form that can be translated between different languages. It facilitates it because there's so like a check built within the lines, that the one line and the next line are matched together as to be like a test of accurate transmission of meaning. And although there were three main categories of parallelism identified by Robert Louth in the 18th century, I think, I'll just put up the two, I think, which are the clearest cut. The first is called synonymous parallelism, which means that those two lines are saying the same thing. So in that example of Psalm 78, verse 10, they keep not the law, they refuse to walk in God's law. Um, So keep not and refusing, those are equivalent. Here's an example. In death there is no remembrance of thee, in the grave, who shall give thee thanks. It's got a a rhythm, though, doesn't it? You know, Brother Carter says it's not necessarily parallel in rhythm. I think often it is parallel in rhythm. In the death, there is no remembrance. In the grave, who shall give thee thanks? What have you got? You've got death and the grave. Are they two different things? Or it's really talking about one thing? It's talking about dead and buried. (laughs) When you're dead and buried, You don't know nothing. That's what it's saying. It's not saying, oh, when you're dead, one thing happens. When you're buried, something else happens. No, the two lines are trying to tell you one thing. It's just one picture. It's it's a picture of a cemetery, and somebody's died, and they've just been put in the ground. That's the picture. And what happens, well, there's no remembrance. They can't give God thanks. Are there two separate things there? Well, really, it's, it's the one thought. And what is the thought? The thought is that in the grave, there's no knowledge of God. And that's completely opposite from the idea of the immortal soul. I mean, if there's one thing people are conscious of, if if you believe the immortal soul, is God, isn't it? Because they're either in heaven or in the wrong place, and (laughs) they're regretting or rejoicing in where they are. But this verse says that (laughs) if there's one thing they're not able to do in the grave is remember God or give him thanks. So, you can see that the two lines are saying one thought through two lines, not two separate thoughts. So, that's quite interesting. What also has been recognized is that, and this is something, you know, doing the daily readings, one could sort of major on, really, because again, although I, I, so I knew about this, I suppose, I'd heard it anyway, I didn't really take it seriously. Uh, and when you start to take it seriously and you start to read the Psalms slowly, and, and think about these parallels, they, they open up thoughts. So you could read that, you know. Da, 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 da. But the second line drives the first line further, or deepens it, or extends it. So can you see the second line? In death. Yes, but what is it about death? You go back to the dust. So it's taking death a step further. You get put in the grave. Dust thou art, and the dust thou shalt return. So it's telling you a little bit more about death. And what is it to remember God? You know, when we're walking along and we remember God, what, what, what do we mean? Oh, I must go to the meeting tomorrow? I mustn't forget to do my readings? What is it to remember God? Well, truly, well, the psalm says, it's to give him thanks. It's to remember his goodness. It's to remember his grace. It's to remember his love. It's not just to remember there is a God. I must be careful how I live my life in case, you know, God's watching me. It is It is much more positive. The point is, in death, there's no remembrance. You can't praise God in the grave. What is life about? It's about praising God. It's about giving thanks to him. That's what life's about. You see how the thought is more than just this. The dead are unconscious. It's actually teaching us about the purpose of life. I, 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 it sticks in my mind because um, a, brother, a brother whose name I quoted as a good example of the best way to view the human element last night. I was in a, a meeting, small little meeting, committee meeting with him. And he was uh, in his mid-80s, I think. And he gave a prayer. Thanking God for life. It just struck me as you know what would a 80 plus year old man be thanking God for, because he was you know frail and so on. And his prayer was that he would give God praise. He asked for life, that he might continue to praise God. And that stuck in my mind. You know, I was a bit younger, and I thought, wow, that's that's what an older person would want to carry on living for, that he might give God praise. Uh, it made an impression on me. But that, isn't that the thought of this parallelism? So in that way, you, know, you might say, I could, I could do an exhort on those two lines. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> Because there's so much in them. There's so much thought in them. And that's just, it's not even a completed sentence, really. Another example, this time, of contrasting. One thought in two contrasting lines. What's possible there? Some trust in chariots, some in horses. But we will remember the name of Yahweh, our God. So they're opposites, aren't they? But they're making the one point. It's a choice. Who are we going to trust? Some put their trust in uh, the arm of flesh. Some put their trust in the weapons of war. We're going to put our trust in God. That line is opposite to that line. Yeah? Isn't it? But it's one thought. And that's why these parallel lines are brought together. They are brought down and fall, but we are risen up and upright. Two contrasting lines. Speaking about one, um, one thing. You notice now, but those two lines are themselves in parallel with those two lines. And so if I give them some sort of label, I could say, that's line A, that's line B, that's line A, that's line B. Because that line and that line, they're a pair, and that line and that line, they're a pair. So you've got these, these pairs of things themselves pairing up. That's the way scripture works. These, this symmetrical, if you're, you know, you're an engineer, you're working on cars, you're working on uh, buildings. You, this is the sort of thing, there's a structure there. You, know, you see stuff lying on the ground and you say to yourself, that goes with that, that goes with that. You recognize how the pieces fit together. Now, that's the timber that goes across there, and, and they join together at that point. And yet, and that's, here, you, know, you look at this roof. Those two uh, girders are replicated with those two girders, and they hold the roof up. There's a symmetry to it. It makes absolute sense. It's something pleasing about it to the eye. And you know, you know when it's not pleasing, you think you've done it wrong. Huh? Uh, so, so there's what's called an aesthetic quality to these patterns. They're good to look at. You know, I think, real nice job, you know? <laughs> I don't know how to do these things, but when, when it's done, I can see. That that looks good. Now, the scriptures like that, when we've, if we, if you like, brushed away the dust and we followed the thought pattern, we stand back and go, wow, wow, that's that's beautiful. And that's, what, that's often what happens. So, Some of these uh, slides I've taken from academic journals just to point out that it's not us as Christadelphians sort of making up these terms. It's generally recognized now that that's the nature of biblical writing. And people, even though they're not believers, stand in admiration of the skill that was there. Now, we know that's attributed to The revelation that the prophets had been given. But nevertheless, the people are in admiration. So, here's an example from this journal. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? And the point being, there are not two places and two activities. There's not somewhere called the hill of the Lord and a different place called his holy place. Both lines are speaking of somebody getting to the temple. The first line is talking about going up to Jerusalem. The second is is talking about reaching there. I mean, why are you going up? Because I want to stand. But why are you going up there? Because that's where his holy place is. That's That's what it's asking. Who shall ascend the hill of Yahweh and stand in his holy place? It's just the one journey. You see, we could misunderstand and say, you know, there's somewhere called his holy place. There's someone called the hill of the Lord. Um, he's off that way. I'm off this way. That's not what it's saying. Um, so let me jump forward. This is one of my favorites of, of all the ones because it links with what we said about inspiration. But just look at what it means in terms of explanation. Proverbs 1 verse 23. Why not turn it up? Because once you see the pattern laid out, It's obvious, but what I want us to think of it, how do we recognize this when we read our Bibles ourselves? And I want you to take your eye from your page to the screen and back to your page and see if you would have recognized it in your own reading. Proverbs 1 verse 23, Turn you at my reproof. Behold, I will pour out my spirit unto you. I will make known my words unto you. If you just see it in your own page, now somebody may tell me they've got a modern version that lays it out like that. I don't know if, if that's the case. But in the AV, it's not lays packaged as one verse. Uh, it's on four lines. It doesn't show the parallel between I will pour out my spirit unto you and I will make known my words unto you. But you notice just looking at your own, verse, you'll see repetition. There's two I wills. There's two unto yous. And there's a rhythm to it. When you catch that rhythm, that's that's where you start to get the clue. When you hear, you know, the beat, you think, ah, there's something going on here. And what it means is, again, there are not two different things. There's not God pouring out his spirit, and separately there's God pouring out his words. He's talking about one event where... God reveals his word from heaven through his Holy Spirit acting upon the prophets. That's what he's saying. What that means is that God's words and his spirit are an entity. 2 Timothy chapter 3, all scripture is God-breathed, God-spirited. Scriptures is God's word. That tells us the importance of the Word of God. You know, there are millions of people who are reading the Bible in North America, and as we drive along, I often put the radio on. Uh, I drove for six hours, you know, from Southern California up to where Matthew's living. Six-hour drive, you know, it's fine. I listened to a lot of radio stations, uh, religious radio stations, and... You can't but be impressed with the number of people. Often, they've been transmitted from Dallas <laughs> or Houston. You know, so I'm, I'm hearing Bible studies from Texas as I'm driving in California. You think there are millions of people studying the Bible. Why don't they understand? Why can't they get it right? You know, they can do some good studies on parts of Scripture, but why can't they learn the truth? And the reason I think is this: that they've been Told that they know the truth by a feeling within them, which is the being born again emotional conversion that they've had, and that usually comes, doesn't it, before they've read the Bible. You know, I hear people saying, I was born again on that day, and then I started studying with Pastor, whatever, you know, and so they're already emotionally committed. To the doctrines that that pastors told them about then they start to read the bible and we don't follow that uh, rightly because the words themselves are spirit we don't need the spirit acting on us directly from god to enable us to understand the bible we say the word is the spirit word and it will teach us how to understand it that's i think why there's such a divergence. In the old days, of course, the Catholic Church taught people what to believe. <laughs> they didn't want them to read the Bible because they knew, I think, that it would contradict those beliefs. And when the Protestants started to have the Bible translated into common language, they tried to kill the people that did it, like Tyndale. They strangled Tyndale because he dared to do that. Because and, and they were right. No sooner was the Bible available to people, say, "Hey, that or you just that's not in the Bible." <laughs> it Says, "Call no man father." Why have we been calling you father all these years? Right. Oh, it doesn't mean that. What does it mean? It says, "Call no man father," and obviously that contradiction. Suddenly we should, I say, "Oh yes, but you." The church tells you how to interpret the Bible. Well, the evangelicals come along, and say, "No, we don't agree with that." The Holy Spirit teaches you how to understand the Bible. Where do I get the Holy Spirit from? Or come to our revival meeting and you'll get it. No, look, there's the truth of it. God's Spirit and his words, that's what they are. They're, They're the Spirit word. That's why we're focusing this weekend on how does the word teach us itself to hear what it's saying. So that's what parallelism is. Now, what I'm going to ask you to do is have a look at a New Testament section and see if you agree that it's there in the New Testament. So when we talk called about Hebrew parallelism, what we'll find is that much of the New Testament is written in this parallelism. And so even the Greek scholars will say that the Greek often follows the Hebrew way of thinking rather than the Greek way of thinking. So the New Testament, though written in Greek, isn't following Greek philosopher's way of writing. It's following Hebrew prophet's way of writing. An example I would like you to look at is Romans chapter 12. I found this one really, really interesting. So see if you uh, look at it the same way. And it's verse 9 to the end of chapter 12. And it starts off, let love be without hypocrisy. Let let love be uh, sincere. And just run your eyes down those verses and see if, if you recognize these patterns. And, and if you did, how would you set out the lines to capture that? Have a go at a couple of verses. Just you know, scribble them out by hand. How would you write out those? If you were, if you were the printer, I <laughs> said, I'm going I'm to print the same words, but I'm going to just set them out to draw attention to the structure. How would you do that? Let me just repeat, I'm, I'm not asking for anything clever here right? I'm just very very simply saying if you were to write that out to follow the thought pattern how would you write it out um, so let me start you off in verse 9 abhor that which is evil cleave to that which is good that's just a regular parallel isn't it and what sort of parallelism is it synonymous or contrastive It's contrastive, isn't it? But clearly, you know what you've got is evil and good are contrasted, and abhor and cleave are contrasted. So, if you abhor the evil, what's the opposite of that? Embrace the good. But you notice that it's two thoughts in uh, one thought in two lines, but the second line actually takes you further. So you might say the first line is negative. But there's no point just being negative, is there? There's no point in getting rid of an unclean spirit and leaving space for seven worse ones to come in. So if you hate that which is evil, grab hold of that which is good. It's not simply, you know, love that which is good. You know, it's actually cleave. There's some action here. There's there's something about getting a grip. Of, of being uh, united with that which is good. It's not just, oh, I, I hate that way of life. You know, I hate what the world's doing. I abhor it. But cleave to that which is good then. It's no good just being in no man's land somewhere in between. It's it's a question of, uh, well, what are we doing then? If we hate that way of life, are, are we grabbing onto the right way to live? You see the point it's making? It, uh, it's it's driving that point further because we can all say oh look at the world it's so terrible look at the way the way things are going it's it's a shocker you know i i, I just don't know all right and then i could just be stewing in it you know just just getting by but but the, the verse is, is, is it's it's not just oh by the way there's another verse now cleave to that which is good it goes along you hate that what's is going on in the world cleave to that which is good so that's just an example of, I, I'm sure that that section of scripture is contrastive parallelism, that verse anyway. But, so it's, it's actually, uh, it's uncomfortable, isn't it? Because it's, it's really saying that, you know, to show kindness and love is not just some emotional expression. It's actually preferring them, putting them first, allowing them to go first. Putting their interests ahead of our own—that's you know, what it really means to love one another. It's, 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 it's uncomfortable. On the face of it, in order preferring one another seems. What's that got to do with being kindly affectionate? But uh, I think if you see them as parallel, then, then you'll see that. Do you see that the phrase "one another" is repeated? So there's a clue there. Affectionate one to another. Preferring one another. So that repetition is giving us the, the statement about parallelism. <clears throat> How about verse 11? Is that a sensible verse division, or is it too much in one verse, not enough in one verse? Right. So interestingly, isn't it, there are three statements in that one verse. In this pa- parallelism, one can have uh, what's called the bicolon, the two lines. You can also have a tricolon, the three lines. So it seems to me that those, that verse is a tricolon in the sense of there are three ways of saying this, the one point. So not slothful in business. That's, as you point out, that's the negative Fervent in spirit, that's a positive. Serving the Lord, that's saying the same thing. Put it this way Why does the Lord want us to be diligent at work? Why does He want us to be conscientious? Now, He says in the epistles, the Apostle Paul says in the epistles, you know, uh, not to be a, a clock watcher, you know, doesn't He? Why? He says, serve your masters. As unto the Lord, in other words, when we are doing our daily business, we are being asked to do it as to the Lord, not just serving our earthly masters. Let me cut into this then. let me set it up. So all I 'm suggesting to you, and it's simple. It's not rewriting scripture at all. It's just simply if, you know, if, if we were to advise the printer on the next run, how might he set out the verses. i have just put those two lines together and those two lines together and those three lines together and the next three lines together because just think about it. rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing instant in prayer. They're saying one thing. When, when life gets tough, we still got to put our minds on the hope to come. How do we do that? Through prayer. When those three things go together. It's all about to say, you know, uh, we're rejoicing in hope. Everything's going fine. You know, everything's worked out just as I'd hoped. I got no problems. I got a you know, a jobs going well, family's going well, everything's, pleasure's going well. It's just you know, we got a wonderful hope, and then things happen, and, and they, the turn of events takes us in a completely different. I never imagined that turn of events. I never know what it would feel like to be in this situation. And it's dreadful, and it's awful, and I don't know what to do, and I don't know what to say, and I don't know what to help. I'm completely useless here. What's going on? Now, how am I going to rejoice in hope? I don't feel like rejoicing at all. It's the opposite, right? So the answer, continue instant in prayer. You've got to have those three together, because they go together. The first two go together in life. You can't avoid it. The more we talk to one another, the more we realize that other families have problems. That every family's got its problems and difficulties. So unless we got the third line in, we're not going to have the answer. Well, these two obviously go together, don't they? And those two obviously go together. Uh, what, What struck me as a possibility is, you see this introductory line here. It seems like a heading that all of this is unhypocritical love. The whole of the chapter is about how to show love, how to live. I, I feel there's more about love in this chapter than even in First Corinthians chapter 13. Because it goes on. Mind not high things, condescend to men of low estate. Be not wise in your own conceits, be of the same mind one to another. Recompense to no man evil for evil, provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as life in you live peaceably with all men. Right? So you've got the all men, the all men, uh, living peaceably, not recompense and evil. There's one thought in three lines there. Here's the uh, uh, contrastive parallel. Avenge not yourselves, give place unto wrath. You know, when you're angry with somebody, don't take revenge. Let it go. Why? For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay. Now, maybe you put all that together, you print it together, I don't know. But can, can you see the point, right? And then this last parallel be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good, sums up the preceding verses. So there's more going on in this than just a list of miscellaneous thoughts. You know, it's, it's almost like you come to the end of the epistle and the Apostle Paul says a whole bunch of, of things <laughs> like, be good, don't be evil the way we translate it to our children is to say, you know, the Apostle Paul is telling us to you know, do the right thing. But actually, there's more going on there in terms of patterns of thought, uh, driving points home, uh, and even, do you notice the beginning and end? This is pointed out to me in, I um, can't remember if it was California or it was because I did these examples, California or Seattle, but I think it was California. Look, look at... Uh, Yes, California. Look at verse 9 and verse 21. Can you see? This whole section is enveloped or bookended. Can you see that? What have you got in verse 9? You've got evil and good. What have you got in verse 21? You've got evil and good. That's quite neat, isn't it? Here, what might seem just to be a list actually takes you back to where you came from. And maybe, maybe there's even more going on than we've been able to uh, to discern at the moment because I'm wondering if verse 16 is actually a center in terms of being of one mind, that this is the mind of Christ that we're trying to develop. But that's, that's a speculation at this point. I haven't had time looking at that. If you go to the... Gospels and you just see the teaching of the Lord, you find that many of his sayings are in these parallel uh, forms. Okay, and I think we, we don't just want... So the mistake would be saying, oh, that's, that's just the way the Hebrews spoke. Right? It's, it's just a Hebraism. Oh, it's just poetry. Hang on. Remember, inspiration. You don't say it's just anything. <laughs> you hear how it's written, because it's trying to teach us. Uh, Maybe it's the rhythm of the thoughts of God that we're supposed to be listening to. We're not about giving a talk. We're not about packaging it in a talk. We're talking about hearing the voice of God speaking to us in a way that is crafted and designed and, and wonderful, beautiful, to hear as, as the, the greatest music, the most perfect painting. That's what, that's what we're coming to. And we stand in awe of the word of God. And it's an antidote to what's going on in the world. You know, with this um, recent years, there's been a lot of controversy over theistic evolution, coming into the brotherhood's thinking, and, you know, many of us have been caught up in having to debate and answer this sort of challenge and it's all rather negative and it's all sadly rather depressing and you think you know and we've got lots of casualties in our own family as well you know and you think oh and what's the antidote to that well i found that looking at this over the last same time period has been a respite you know uh, An hour a day or something like that just looking at these structures is just thinking oh look this is the word of god this is the inspired word of god this is true no man would have invented this no man could have invented it if he wanted to and no man would have invented it if he could have right that this is just too awesome it's the word of god then you look at prophecy and you say well and look what's happening in the middle east and look, uh, what President Trump, who expected President Trump? And what has he done? He appointed you know, Nikki Haley to the United Nations. And she stands up and says, you're all against Israel. It's got to stop. Jerusalem's going to be the capital. Amazing. The burdensome stone just notched up a couple of ratchets <laughs> into the world's attention. Oh, the hand of God is at work. The word of God is, is awesome. awesome. And it's got these features and because we're men doesn't mean to say we're not to appreciate the beauty of of of, of the symmetry and poetry yes it may be more like uh, uh, maybe more like sewing needlecraft you know tapestry just think of the beauty of the tabernacle how it was woven with different threads you know, to, to bring out the features that's what we're talking about so that parallelism, which, which occurs, you know, within a verse, within one, within two or three lines, also can work at a larger scale. And, Ryan, you mentioned uh, ask, seek, and knock. Well, if you go, if everyone would turn to Matthew chapter 7. Uh, I look at uh, Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 and 8. You'll see there a pattern, which I suppose is pretty obvious. I'll ask you, what would you call that, verses 7 and 8? Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth. And him that knocketh, it shall be opened unto you. What what would you call that? Any want want to invent a term for that? It's parallelism, isn't it? But not just two lines, there's there's sets of three. There is a term, step parallelism, it's up there. And all all we do is set it out. So this is just the convention, that's all it is. It it doesn't make it anything different from what it really is. In in the original Greek, there's no spaces between the words even. Never mind setting out lines like this. But just to draw out what we're hearing, I would just say that's an ABC, ABC pattern. And the second time you use the A, you usually put a prime, little mark to designate. You know, this is the second line. So it's ABC, ABC. That goes with that, that goes with that, that goes with that. Ask, ask, seek, seek, knock, knock. Ask, knock, ask, knock. the lord could have said it differently he could have said he could have said you know that line and that line together but he didn't he separated it out it gives it a rhythm there's a repetition there's a story to be told there what's the story it goes back to proverbs chapter 2 right here's a man looking for wisdom Um, anybody know where wisdom lives of the shoulders nobody knows where wisdom lives um, i'm looking for wisdom where's wisdom you know better go look over there because there's no wisdom around here <laughs> so he goes over there gets to texas and says anybody know what wisdom? yeah i've heard of wisdom in texas yeah uh i think there's somebody up there he knows i've heard him talk about wisdom go go and find it yeah 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 i know that that's that's uh, they call him Brother Wisdom, actually. Brother Wisdom's up there. He lives, go knock on his door. Well, I don't know whether to or not. You know, I'm really a bit shy. I don't know. You know, is he, is he fierce? Is he, <laughs> is he a hard man? <laughs> is he easy to talk to? You know, he's aggressive. Is he argumentative? Oh, no, no. He's like, go knock. Should Knock on Wisdom's door. Say, come in. Come in. Glad, glad you found us. Right. That's, that's, that's a story, isn't it? That's been, it's, you've been taken along that path. And then the second time, you go along the same path. It's like an encouragement. Because if, if you do ask, you are going to get it. If you do seek, you will find it. And if you knock, you will be invited in. Right? I just love it. As you say, oh, it's a children's story. But it's the Lord Jesus Christ teaching those who are going to be children of the kingdom of God. And it, it is powerful. It's not just a little mantra. It's really telling us that we've got to pursue, we've got to be bold, we've got to we've got to give effort. We've got to actually go up and knock on wisdom's door. We've got to put the effort in. We've got to change the analogy. We've got to dig for treasure. You're not going to fight the treasure just lying on the street. You've got to go dig for it. That's what it's trying to say. It's no point us talking together about the Bible if we're not prepared to actually to put effort in to study the Word of God. Uh, and, and have something worthwhile to share with one another and an effort means effort you know we're not talking about light reading here we're talking about as we did this morning you know looking at these passages pouring over them you know really working at what's going on here that's the effort we've got to be putting in and it will give reward because if we do that the door will be open to us. We will find it. We will get what we ask for. But now we're going to come on to an even more amazing thing. Inverted or introverted parallelism. And it is one which you know we do find a little bit difficult. I've only come across this in the last six years. Right? I didn't know about this before. Um, and so I'm pretty enthusiastic about it uh, and I'll talk to anybody who will stop and listen and even if they won't stop and listen I'll chase them down the street to tell tell them about it because I feel if you did know why didn't you tell me (laughs) how have you let me go so long not knowing about it and people did know and they didn't tell me (laughs) so what do we mean anybody recognize this Refrigerator door. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Read the Bible to believe what you find, not to find what you believe. (laughs) That is a chiastic sentence. It's a good one. It's a really good one. There's a very famous uh, presidential statement in the U.S., which you may be able to complete. Ask not what your country can do But... What you can do for your country. And you remember that just from me saying ask not, right? So they're memorable. These inverted sentences are memorable. They, they have the second line is the reverse of the first. So there's believe, there's believe, there's find, there's find. Believe, find, find, believe. Now if you were to draw a line between these two words, because they're the same, and between those two words, you would get one of these. You'd get a cross. And in Greek, that's the letter chi, C-H-I. So it's called a chiasmus. That's where that phrase comes from. That's as simple as that. Right? It just The Greek said, "Okay, draw a line between these words, it, you get a cross, uh, it's the letter chi, C-H-I, it's called a chiasmus. That's operating at one sentence level. It's fun, it's memorable, it's pithy, it's pointed, isn't it? Right? Read the Bible to believe what you find, not to find what you believe. Okay, that's not a biblical one, but it, it just illustrates that this principle... Um, is there, and we sort of understand it instinctively. We we put it up on the, on the refrigerator because it's, it's making a point. And we've taken the point. That's why we've repeated. But, believe it or not, it wasn't recognized as a biblical feature until John Jeb in the 1800s. So this is the guy who recognized parallelism, and then John Jebb realized that some of those parallels had another dimension to them. So this is what he said in 1820. There are stanzas so constructed that whatever be the number of lines, the first line shall be parallel with the last, the second with the penultimate and so throughout in an order that looks inward or to borrow a military phrase from flanks to center, this may be called introverted parallelism. An example he gave, my son, if thine heart be wise, my heart shall rejoice, yea, my rent shall rejoice, when thy lips shall speak right things. So if you had to put uh, the ABC labels on that, what pattern would that be? A, B, B, A. Yeah? Okay, that's an A, because... The first line is about the son, and the middle two are about the father. So the first line corresponds with the last line, and the second line corresponds with the third line. It's a simple Abba um, example. And so, oh, that's neat. Found more, found more. It was Bullinger in the Companion Bible who took this up with a vengeance. He wrote about it and he wrote about the concept very eloquently, worth reading. And then he sort of set out what he thought were the patterns in the Bible and put a lot of people off. And there are brethren who are familiar with the the companion Bible and intrigued by Bollinger, but who said, I don't know, there's something about it that doesn't quite fit. Well, Bollinger's uh, use of chiastic structures went into disrepute, really, because others, scholars so called, said, yeah, he's, he's using his imagination. He's, he's, he's imposing structure. Well, I had a companion Bible given to me when uh, I was younger. I never even recognized that it had these things in it. <laughs> uh, but recently we've done an experiment. So I've asked uh, I asked ten brethren who are familiar with casting structures, who've recognised them themselves, who, uh, who've put them on our website. I edited, but they put them to me. I put them on the website, and they've said, "I said, to them, give me your five best, your five favourite, your five most powerful that you are definitely." certain about. So I collected 50 of these. They're not just my favourites. They're other brethren's favourites. And I looked at what Bullinger did for those 50 passages. And there was very little overlap. Very little overlap. When I looked at what he'd done, I don't think he got them right. Now, okay, that's a, so that's a bit of an arrogant thing to say. But I don't think he got them right. Which is why I don't think they were convincing. Right? At least the patterns that he got are Hard to know what to make of them, whereas the ones the brethren have come up with, I think, well, oh, they're they're bankers, you know, they're really good. So what I'm saying about Bollinger is, don't let him put you off looking for these things. Yes. He's he's worth looking at. He's certainly worth reading about the concept. Uh, he's he's written a thousand-page book on figures mm. of speech in the Bible. <laughs> you know, it's an amazing thing, way beyond me. But. Uh, I think that he was on the right track when he started. And some of the examples are really good. His uh, analysis of the book of Esther is a cracker. (laughs) It's really interesting, and we can discuss that. But if you get the idea, and one of the points is you really need to look at the word order in the Hebrew, Greek. The English sometimes changes the word order and therefore covers up these patterns. So sometimes you have to check the translation, check the version, go to the interlinear to see what it is. And this is an example. right? Whoever sheds the blood of man, Genesis chapter 9, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man will his blood be shed. You see the the point? It takes you There, and then it takes you back. So you've got shed, blood, man. Two or more clauses related to each other through a reversal of structures in order to make a larger point. So the parallel lines are there, but they're separated by other parallel lines in between. Right? I know it's not the first time most of you are hearing this. But if it is, it'll sound really weird and a bit odd. And you might think, what's that got to do with us and Bible study? Well, it's the way the Bible's written. It's the way the Bible's written. And if we don't get our heads around it, we're not following the way the Bible's written. I, I have, uh, people say, oh, you're exaggerating. You're Obsessed with it. You, uh, you know." Yeah, you're pushing it too far. Well, you have to decide whether that's the case or not. Um, I think as time's gone on, uh, what I said at the beginning is correct. It's everywhere. I don't mean that every passage of the Bible is in this way, but it's everywhere. It's in all the books of the Bible, and it's maybe in every chapter, as we call it. So, let me give you um, <coughs> some. Further background. <laughs> Bollinger's work went into decline. <clears throat> and it was uh, an American writer called Lund, working out of Chicago, who reintroduced chiasmus to the uh, world of uh, theology I suppose of Bible students and he wrote in the 1940s or in 1930s and 40s and he wrote a paper on the presence of chiasmus in the Old Testament and he gave examples and he wrote a book and that book was recently relatively recently reprinted so you can get the original book and in that book there is a a preface by the editors who thought it was worth reprinting. And they pointed out that the reception of this book was mixed. Some said, this is amazing. This is, makes all the difference. And others said, too much imagination. Right? But, but uh, that's where, if you like, the, the commentators were. Here's an example, one of the most amazing examples you'd find in the whole of Scripture. Isaiah chapter 60, verses 1 to 3. You wouldn't know this just by looking, unless you look very, very carefully at Isaiah chapter 60. What I've got is this passage of Scripture broken up into three verses. And there's no structure there at all. But when Lund points out that you know, every word or phrase in that first verse is paralleled with something in the third verse, but in reverse order, saying, "Goodness me, theres this a little jewel there. It's sparkling. <laughs> it's absolutely amazing. Look, arise! Thy rising, shine, the brightness of the kings. For thy light is come. The gentle shall come to thy light. And the glory of Yahweh. Upon thee shall arise Yahweh and his glory. So, you know, you've got these parallels. At the center is darkness. So what you've got is darkness wrapped around with light. The, the sequence of thought is, is extraordinary, don't you think? And, you know, I, I'd like to find a way of just getting these printed out and putting them up on the wall, because I'd like to look at it. <laughs> yeah, And you're not looking at it line by line. You stand back and you look at it. Okay, the indentation is, is just the way, the convention for showing You know how the parallels fit together. That's all that is. It's a neat way of doing it, but don't get hung up upon indenting and so on. And the way to find them yourself is to get your uh, computer, block copy the text you think is a sensible unit of scripture. In other words, you know we've we've looked at what is a unit of thought. Block copy that into your word processor. Ignore the verse numbers even delete them. Get rid of all the the line spacing and just put them all in a block of text. And now look at that passage and highlight repeating words or phrases. Just highlight. And where you think a line should be, just put the cursor, create a line, and space out. And that's... what. That's what we do back home. Simple as you know, you block a passage of scripture into a word processor and say, "If I was setting this up, just try to hear, just trying to hear the voice of the words. How would I space that thought out?" And if it doesn't work, put it back again. <laughs> try again, right? And it's <clears throat> it's a technique. That's all that is. It's a technique. You're not rewriting scripture. You're just reprinting the page according to the internal clues that the page will give you. If you've never done that, I do. I mean, could do it this weekend. But have a go at it. Just have a go at it. Right? Give it a try. Because, uh, and start off with one where somebody tells you there is a pattern. And just see if you get the pattern. Now, you may get a better pattern. I'm you know, not saying there's one right one and we know what that is and you need to find it. What I'm saying is that uh, there are many examples now where several, anyone looking at that passage will, if they got the concept, will be able to work it out. Being the first to find it is not really what we're about, right? It's not, look, I found something no one else has found. When I say I found this, I don't mean I discovered the gold mine. What I mean is I've gone to the museum and I've seen that piece of gold, you know, uh, and I said, wow, do you know what's in the museum? Well, they found, no, I found it. Oh, I found it. I found that somebody else has found it, right? That's, that's what, I, what I mean when I say I found it. I'm not saying, look at me, look what I found. It's not about you know, competition. It's about appreciation. If somebody says to you, you know, there's a wonderful painting in the National Gallery in London. Have you seen it? No. You better go find it because it's, it's wonderful. You go and you see, wow, that's amazing. How Turner painted those skies over London. That's amazing. All right, OK. But now we're talking about something even more precious than that. So it's, a more, it's about appreciation, not about in our, our invention. So did other people know about it? Is this a weird, wacky thing? that I've brought to you from Wales. (laughs) This is brother LG Sargent, who became editor of the Christadelphian, writing in the Christadelphian magazine about Matthew chapter 7. I looked at this passage many times wondering why the pigs were aggressive. Because the pigs trample underfoot and turn again and rend you. Did you believe in aggressive pigs? Well, they've got big fangs and they're nasty, so be careful getting near, near... uh, That's not what the passage is saying at all. It's not. The parallelism appears to show a crossing over of the sense, technically a chiasmus, the fourth line being the counterpart of the first. And the third, it's the dogs that are turning again. And everybody in Middle Eastern countries would have understood that. It's not the pigs who are biting, the pigs are trampling, and it's the dogs who are biting. That's what the uh, passage is about. And Brother Sargent mentions this, and it's one of the very few references to it in 100 years of the Christadelphian. And you could treat it as a footnote, a curiosity. If you went back and looked at Matthew 7, you'd find that the whole of Matthew 7 has these patterns. It's selected because it was recognized. Okay? Who else knew about it? If you've got the apocalypse epitomized by Brother H.P. Mansfield, written at least in the 1960s, so as I've asked in Australia when, when do they think it was written, and uh, Ben said, Well, I had my copy in the 1960s, so that's a while ago. This is what he said. And he says the book of Revelation is itself chiastically organized. At least he's used that word, and I probably better avoid it. He rather used this phrase introverted Hebrew poetry. And he says that the book of Revelation is divisible into ten sections so designed as to suggest a parallelism of ideas similar to that found in introverted Hebrew poetry. And then he says Hebrew poetry represents a parallelism of ideas rather than of rhyme. One idea builds upon another until the complete thought is revealed. And then he says in introverted Hebrew poetry which is frequently found in scripture. He said that in the 1960s. I don't know whether anybody took any notes. If they took notes, they didn't tell me. <laughs> I, so I've been missing out for 50 years of this key feature. You may debate whether the book of Revelation is organized that way. There's a good case. I come to a slightly different conclusion as to what the central point is. But we could discuss that. But look, that's it. He gives us an example, Psalm 135. Well, I know where he got it from. He got it from Bullinger, and that's how Bullinger sets it out. That's so uh, what uh, one can look at that. But one of my favorites uh, I'm going to put up now, and I, I love it, uh, partly because of when it was given me, Brother Todd Gave it to me uh, in Texas Bible School uh, three years ago, was it? Uh, and I just started to talk about uh, chaosmos. Just stumbled on it, and he gave me a slip of paper, and he says, "Here's one of them things." <laughs> and 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 I, it just it stuck in my mind because. Um, and Todd said, "Sorry to embarrass him," but he said I could look and look at it, right? And uh, and that's the point that's the point you can look and look at it and it, it was this one it's a real classic because it's so profound if you look at your bible and look at matthew 8 verse 2 and 3 you won't necessarily see that point It's divided up into verses but when you when you look at it closely you'll see that's an a b c b a structure right? And it gets even better when you go to the original Greek word order. Because it makes it even cleaner. So that's what, that's what these brackets are. They're just uh, pointing out that in the, in the Greek it says, I will be thou clean. And immediately was cleansed his leprosy. Right? So that word leprosy is the last word. And it matches up. There came a leper. The leper says, Lord, if thou wilt, thou canst make me clean. Jesus says, I will be thou clean. And immediately was cleansed. His leprosy. Oh, You can set it out. you will. But can you see what the point of that is? Can you see that the point is not simply, although this is most amazing, that he could cleanse a leper. I mean, a leprosy was an incurable disease. And yet here's a man who could cleanse the leper. Can you see what the point is? The point is he touched the leper. You do not do that. You do not touch a leper. Jesus didn't need to go near the man. He could have stood a mile away. He could have stood the other side of the world. And with a word, cleanse this leper. He chose to go up and touch this leper. That is an awesome thing. That is a stunning thing. You do not touch a leper. The leper goes unclean, unclean. And he backs away from you. And he's outside the camp as far away as he can go. And you stay as far away as you can from him. But Jesus touched the leper. And that beautiful symmetry makes that central point, the point. The point. It's not just, if I can put it that way, that Jesus cured a leper. He touched the leper. Did I tell you I touched a leper once? I touched a leopard by accident. <laughs> At least the circumstances were such that uh, I almost didn't. He was sitting outside the Ethiopian Ministry of Health building, begging. And I was there for the World Health Organization. And they told us you know, not to give money to the, the beggars. But you know, it's so, they're, they're pleading with you. you know, and your heart goes out to them. Because if you start to give money, then you get a 100 people around you. And it's, it, there's, there's a riot going on. So they say not to. But this man was just sat there with his hand out. And I put my hand in my pocket. And I, I'm i going to give him this. These, and I looked at his hand. And he didn't have any fingers on his hand. All he had was a stump of a palm. And I thought, you're not going to be able to catch this money. I thought, you're a leper. And I thought, I can't just drop the money on his, his partial hand. And I froze for a split second. I thought, am I going to touch it? Because even, even, you know, I'm medically trained. And I know leprosy is not contagious nowadays in the same way. And it may not even be the same disease. And he wouldn't be on the street unless he'd been treated. And, you know. And nevertheless, even in the twentieth century, you know there was a stigma about leprosy. I went to a leprosarium on my visit, pre visit. I went to leprosarium, and you know I was, I was, I was. It was awful. I felt thoroughly ashamed of myself because I couldn't stand in 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 the ward. It was so, the stench was terrible. I couldn't. I couldn't stick it. I had to go out. It was awful. It was it was thick with um, uh, you know just just it was bad. And uh, and I thought the Lord touched a man. Now, when you look at the Luke record. He was full of leprosy. He was full, full of leprosy. You know, from like Isaiah chapter one, from the sole of his foot to the top of his head. Where'd you touch him? Well, he hasn't got it. But the whole point was that the Acts, Matthew chapter 8 says, Himself took our infirmities. Do you see how much point there is in that point? We're not making it up. The structure is telling you that's what you've got to get your head around. And then you imagine what it was like to be that leper to actually to be taken hold of and find that immediately the leprosy was gone wonderful, absolutely wonderful right now I, I was shown that was somebody shared that with me um, uh, not just with here's one of these things but I could look and look at that, and you can understand why, because it's a moving thing. I was moved by it because I'd been in that situation where, now I look, I knew the point about touching the leprosy before that structure was revealed to me. I knew, I knew it. You know, I've heard people talk about it. You know, but the point is made more forcefully, more pointedly, more powerfully when I see that. And it, no, no, it wasn't brethren making it up or offering an opinion. Itself was teaching us how to see it. Let me give, before we break, let me just give you one more example. And this is uh, uh, one that Lund wrote about, but I didn't know about it at the time. But uh, my dear wife found during the Bible readings. I didn't see it until I was asked to turn the page because Psalm 67 is on two pages. The second half on the next page, so it means I missed uh, the repetition. I don't need to explain it, do I? Once you see it, it's, it's clear. I put this one up because it's a really good example of how this structure interprets the psalm. So, if it, it provides exposition. And you can see, uh, it starts and ends with blessing. It moves into the earth. This verse 3 is repeated in verse 5. The nations are glad and sing. Uh, and the nations are being governed upon the earth. One might say, well, don't divide up the middle too precisely. It's, it's, you know, don't just keep the thought whole. That's fine. I'm not interested in the best way, you know, to set it out. That's not the issue. Can you hear why the nations are rejoicing. What is it about the kingdom that makes all nations of the world rejoice? Are they being fed? Are they being given health care? No. What is it? If you could put your finger on one thing that the kingdom is about, what would it be? God's righteousness Judgments are in the earth. Stunning, isn't it? What are we praying for? That the whole earth will be filled with his glory. That his righteousness might bring peace to the people. That's what the kingdom's about. What a stunning thing. It's not about us. It's about he shall judge the people. That's what the world is yearning for. A world of corrupt governments, of corrupt dictators, uh, of corrupt organizations, of dirty money flowing around the world, robbing the poor, feeding the rich. Even now in 2018, that's the problem in the world. Every day a scandal is uncovered. And the ones who suffer, the powerless, the widow, the fatherless. What's the kingdom about? The Lord Jesus Christ judging the people righteously. And the fruit of righteousness is peace. And the effect of righteousness, quietness and assurance forever. There's our perspective. And actually, that structure makes that point. So if you agree with me uh, uh, that they're there, I don't think there's any doubt they're there. They've been discovered before and people have written about them, and then they've fallen out of fashion. And uh, I think we've therefore lost a a most valuable insight into the thinking of the word of God. What I'd say is that um, I I posted about 2,000. Some of them, others have found. One of the tests I use is whether that center is powerful. Right, so they've gone through a, a sieve, me. <laughs> all right, so it's not it's not pretending to be you know anything more than a place where we post suggestions for brethren to see what they think. That's all. Now a lot of non-Christadelphians use it and comment, and you get. I, I'm happy about that because you get tested. You know, you get other minds saying, oh, this is ridiculous, or this is, no, they're not saying that. They're saying, yeah, yeah, I see it slightly differently. They're, they're, not, they're not pulling it apart and saying uh, crazy stuff. So, in a way, you, when sort of calibrating this, just, I think we're on the right lines. And then we get alternative suggestions, and sometimes finding the center, it's not always clear cut. Sometimes it's a double center, sometimes... We don't know that it's the most important point, but it's a turning point. And one example would be s es- the Book of Esther, this is Bullinger's example. Why would the center be the night the king can't sleep? Right? You know, of all the things that happen in the Book of Esther, why would insomnia be the turning point? Well, that's the center of a symmetrical structure. And the reason is this. What is the Book of Esther about? God's not mentioned. But clearly God's at work, isn't it? Isn't it the hand of providence? And everything turns on the night the king can't sleep, and it happens to be a book open in front of him on the right page. And it's, you can smile at it because, you know, you can see uh, the angels saying, you know, I've opened the book, got into the page. Wake him up now. <laughs> and he'd, oh, wake up, <laughs> wake up. couple of nudges. Oh, I can't sleep. Oh, oh, I wonder what happened to Mordecai. And then outside, oh, Haman, you're here. What would you do with a man the king delights to honor? <laughs> and it all comes together on the night the king can't sleep. The whole history of the Jewish nation, the survival of the Jewish nation, turns on the night the king can't sleep. It's marvelous, isn't it? It's the ways of providence. It's... it's uh, you smile when you realise it's like the it's like the pivot. Sure, that in itself is not the most important event. You know, maybe you'd say it was Mordecai's encouragement to Esther, or maybe it was Esther's bravery in going into the king. Uh, you know, you'd say those were the events. But actually, as the book is written about, it's swivelling around a strange coincidence. Insomnia, haven outside the book opened to the right page. So, so the engine only had to organize three things. <laughs> and the rest sort of follows on. Although well, we get that sort of phenomena, and sometimes they're challenging, and I think, you know, but at least it allows you to debate, what is the point? Is that the one? I'm not sure about that. you know. Yeah. And one of the criteria I suggest is, if it gets even better when you go back to the original, that's, that's a good sign. You know, if it gets cloudier, then you probably haven't got it right. Some of the versions, like the NIV, are, are often too uh, dynamic equivalent to see the verbal parallels. Because the, st- the stronger the verbal links, the better. You know, if it's using exactly the same words, you're on, you're on a stronger footing than just taking ideas. And so be wary. I'll go through those in another session about, you know, how to check them out. But even if you don't come up with the same answer, which, which is quite reasonable, you know, you look at it differently from me and you hear, okay. Um, it's a wonderful way of drawing us in to keeping on reading and trying to follow the train of thought. And when you realize the train of thought may, best analogy, a screw thread. right? If you're used to working with... Uh, Uh, mechanical things just think of a screw thread right that the argument is turning but as it turns it moves forward it's not a nail it's not just driving straight through it's turning it's not coming back to exactly the same point but it is coming back around and around but in so doing takes us forward you can think of it like that you get sort of permission then to say well I'm reading John chapter 4 why should I link it to John chapter 2 we've moved on from there And that must be the way I thought about things. You know, we're moving on, but actually, John chapter four is taking you back to Cana of Galilee to reflect on where you've come from. You know, so literally, you you go back to Cana and say, and and we're told where Jesus performed the water into wine miracle. So there's something about coming back here, which is picking up where we left off. The argument. Of the literature, which is John's Gospel, has turned on that idea. So, in new, unfamiliar, not quite sure what to make of it. So, God willing, in the next uh, session, when we break out, we'd be able to try out some of these and see if we, you know, find them, come to the same conclusions, decide for ourselves what value to place upon it.